Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. The title of today's interview is Parapsychology, Where Are You? With me is Stephen Schwartz, who is the author of The Secret Vaults of Time, The Alexandria Project, Opening to the Infinite, and uh, also The Eight Laws of Change. Stephen is a very experienced parapsychologist. He is one of the founders of the International Remote Viewing Association, has conducted numerous experiments involving uh, remote viewers, non-local percipients, I think he would prefer as, as a term, engaged in archaeological work. And one of the reasons I want to have this conversation with you today, uh, Stephen, is, is because your work was so inspiring to me during my days as a graduate student in, at Berkeley. I couldn't help but think with the remarkable successes that you were reporting in archaeology and Putoff and Targ were reporting uh, in their re remote viewing research at SRI International that parapsychology was on the verge of revolutionizing not just science but society as a whole. And now looking back 40 years later we can say well there was a revolution it was the internet revolution. Right. Parapsychology didn't achieve its potential yet and uh, I think it's important to look at why. Uh, well I think that's actually a very important topic to talk about because the promise of parapsychology no let me reframe it. I think you have to separate the idea of the study of consciousness of which parapsychology is one approach yes. um, from parapsychology qua parapsychology. I, it is my view that parapsychology has made a really important contribution to science in general. And that is it, it has developed meticulously designed protocols for exploring a particular aspect, the non-local aspect of consciousness. I mean, it's, you know, we kind of take it for granted, those of us who are, know the field, that the kind of analysis of remote viewing or presentiment research or therapeutic intention research or, or uh, uh, Gonsfeld, those sorts of things, that these protocols, we just kind of take them for granted. We don't really talk about them. But when you look at the history of the field, and you look indeed at the study of consciousness throughout history, what you see is that about, the, about 100 years ago, at the end of the 19th, early part of the 20th century, a group of very preeminent scientists, Nobel laureates, uh, Charles Richet, who won the Nobel for Medicine in 1913, uh, Crookes, uh, Sir William Crookes. Sir William Crookes. Yes. Um, really very notable, William James, really notable people mm -hmm. 
took this material quite seriously and began a, a coherent study of the non-local aspect of consciousness, which has resulted in these protocols that have been developed by parapsychology and which are very sophisticated. 140 years of history. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem that parapsychology faces, well, there are two. In my view, parapsychology got trapped in an impossible situation. They got trapped in the proof of principle mm. issue to cross the threshold. And if you're constantly having to prove what you're doing actually exists, you, it's very hard to get on. I was surprised. I, I started working in archaeology because not only did it offer extremely rigorous uh, control conditions, but I thought by showing that you could actually do something with it, um, and at, at parallel with my work, SRI was working with the American intelligence community and a variety of agencies mm -hmm. to perform work to, uh, to advance America's uh, intelligence interests. I thought that between what SRI was doing and what I was doing, that that it would, like you, that it would catch on and and there would be other uses. Mm -hmm. I subsequently, I've done a lot of research, a lot of thinking, and a lot of research about why that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And I, the reason I think is a taboo that is so universal in Western culture as to be invisible. And to really understand what happens to parapsych what happened to parapsychology, you have to go back to the 1500s and the Council of Trent, okay, which was actually a series of councils mm -hmm. which occurred in the 15 early 1600s, in which the church, which was in a state of crisis because of the Reformation movements, yeah basically took to itself anything that had to do with what was called spirit, mm -hmm. by which I would read non-local consciousness. Mm -hmm. And uh, that if you were a scientist who got involved with and touched on this question of spirit, you made yourself potentially vulnerable to charges of heresy and which invoked the Inquisition, which begins in the 1200s, and um, you could end up getting burnt alive, mm -hmm. which is um, really deeply unpleasant. <laughs> and, and that went on for almost 300 years. And yeah. so scientists were, the, the, the Council of Trent decisions said, Things of the spirit belong to the church. And, and there were alchemists and mystics who were literally burned at the stake. Oh, lots. Giordano Bruno being one of the lots. most prominent. The last person killed by the Inquisition was in 1826. It was a Spaniard who was publicly garroted for teaching a deism. So yes, from the 1500s, well really starting in the 1200s, but big time, mm -hmm. from the 1500s to the 1800s, uh, 1900s, uh, early 1900s, 
getting involved with things that that touched on the non-local aspects yeah. of consciousness could literally get you tortured and killed. And I, I believe there were over 100,000 uh, people accused of witchcraft. Who witchcraft, mm -hmm. all kinds of things. Although, I mean, many of these are women who were herbalists. And, yeah. But to, to, to finish the thought, yeah. the what happened as a result of that was the church said, we will take things of the spirit. You, science, can have everything that has to do with the material. Mm-hmm. And uh, and scientists discovered, well, there was actually a lot to discover in yeah. the world of the material. And so they went from discretion, okay, I'm going to just not get into that. Um, there's lots to focus on in the material world, to it becoming a taboo. Mm -hmm. And it's a taboo that masquerades in uh, several guises, one of them is materialism, but it um, it became culturally verboten to verboten to to get involved in things that involve consciousness until the late nineteenth century with the development of psychology and psychiatry yep. and parapsychology, mm -hmm. which occur at a, roughly the same oh, time. Oh, okay, I know there's some exceptions. Isaac Newton, for example, uh, was a deep student of alchemy. Oh, yes. I, th I mean, there are always, yeah. th this always continues. Yeah. I mean, for instance, Descartes, we talk about, you know, the, the dualism He's in my the, mind. The, the, the archetypal dualist. Yeah. What most people are completely unaware of is that Descartes insights which took him 18 years to it took him 18 years to write his great work in which all of this comes out arose when he was a young uh, soldier in Ulm and on a cold night in November he had three dreams so mm -hmm. the inspiration for Descartes insight comes from a non-local experience yeah sure and 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 uh, in the in the 20, early 20th century, almost all of the German school of physics, the Heisenberg, Pauli, Schrodinger, uh, uh, Einstein, uh, Planck, all of these men came to the conclusion that consciousness was the fundamental mm -hmm. and were not only interested in and open to the idea of consciousness and non-local consciousness. And by non-local consciousness, I mean that, that aspect of consciousness that is not physiologically based. Mm -hmm. uh, if all consciousness is physiologically based, then dead meat, no consciousness. Right. And yet we have a, a great mass of research, reincarnation research, near-death research, communications research, that argue for the continuity and, of consciousness. And we'll talk about that yeah. in a separate interview. Yeah, but the, the issue about parapsychology is that this taboo is still very much alive. Even though you did your pioneering archaeological work a half a century after Planck had already talked about the primacy of consciousness, right. uh, I'm amazed, for example, that other archaeologists haven't done more to follow up on, on your work. Oh, well, um, there are archaeologists who have done work. They do it very quietly because they don't want to get into an argument about it. Um, 
So I, I have consulted on a number mm -hmm. of projects that people have done. So it's not that there's no work, but the way that I did it, where it was explicit and open, yeah. first of all, it's very expensive. Second of all, it takes a very long time. It is a tremendous amount of mm -hmm. work. It revolves teams of, of, of specialists in a variety of areas. It's just, I think in many cases, it's just too much work. Well, you have unique talents. You, you're an entrepreneur and a writer and a researcher and an organizer. Uh, it takes someone with all of those skills. But l let's look at my case, for example. All I was was a graduate student. I got a doctoral degree in parapsychology over 35 years ago. To my knowledge, the only it, one that they ever issued. The that? only doctoral diploma from an accredited university that says parapsychology anywhere in the world. And given the enormous database that we now have, it seems to me that um, you're right. The, the, there is a taboo, but uh, I, I don't quite yet understand why there should be. It, it seems to me it's uh, it's totally outdated. Well, it is outdated, but it is exactly, uh, Jeff, it's uh, the equivalent to it is the dominionist worldview that we have, that we live on the earth and that we have dominion over the earth. Uh, that whole perspective, which is the basis of all the extractive mm. industries and, and, you know, that we control the earth. Yeah. And, I mean, it's nonsense, but nonetheless, it is such a strong belief that it is invisible. And I think that what I think is also happening is, is that many other branches of science, almost in spite of themselves, and the neurosciences, for instance, and medicine, uh, are confronting the non-local aspects of consciousness. And in the future, my belief is, parapsychology, certainly in the United States, mm. appears to be withering. Mm. but. The study of non-local consciousness... It's not going to go away. Well, no, 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 no. no. The study of non-local consciousness is actually just beginning. Mm -hmm. If you look at quantum biology, if you look at uh, areas of physics, if you look at um, resuscitation medicine, it didn't even exist 10, 15 years ago. What you see is that in a wide range of disciplines, Men and women who were scientists who were formerly physicalists are changing their perspective not because they've had some kind of religious conversion, but because their data compels them yep. to deal with it. Yep. And so I think what's going to happen is that the careful protocols and approaches of parapsychology, which are not properly appreciated and acknowledged, are going to continue. I mean, that's a real contribution, but that the field as a discipline, and here I would make the distinction that Thomas Kuhn makes. Mm -hmm. Thomas Kuhn, the leading historian and philosopher of science in the 20th century, made a very clear distinction between a discipline and a science. Mm -hmm. A discipline is a group of people who are trying to study something in, in a coherent and, and um, a shared way. Mm -hmm. A science is a discipline in which everybody agrees what the paradigm is. So parapsychology has always been a discipline but not a science. 
in Kuhnian terms. Because there's no agreement concerning exactly. a, a, a paradigm. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would say... Or theory. I would say approximately a third of the parapsychological community uh, are not sure that, that would be unwilling to make a public formal statement that non-local consciousness has unequivocally been demonstrated to exist. And when you say the parapsychological community, they're really only two, three hundred. Yes, uh, in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So about a third would be uncomfortable having to make a public statement like that. Another third, roughly, uh, are physicalists, and they want to explain parapsychological phenomena in some way that does uh, that that lives within the materialist paradigm. Mm -hmm. And a f another third, the final third, myself and others, believe that what we're really looking at uh, when we look at non-local consciousness is we are glimpsing through a window something about how reality yeah. is constructed. Mm -hmm. And that what what we're really seeing is a is a f a process of information architecture, in which, as Planck said, consciousness is fundamental and materiality is its manifestation. Mm -hmm. So, the discipline itself has three very clear groups, and has never attained, in Kuhnian terms, a, a science. We are a discipline, as opposed to. Uh, say biology mm -hmm. um, or archaeology, something like that. Um, so what we're going to see in parapsychology is the retention of the approaches and the protocols, but it's going to be subsumed into a larger emerging body of science, most of which is being carried out by other disciplines, other sciences, mm -hmm. that have been forced to confront the reality of non-local consciousness. Okay. I mean, for instance, in the near-death research, the physicians that are doing resuscitation medicine, on the whole, um, I'm, I know a number of them, and I've read their papers and their yeah. books, didn't start out. I mean, they started out as materialists. Yep. And they kept confronting these phenomena that simply didn't fit that that paradigm, and so you mean like near death experiences? Yes, the, sur the, the mm -hmm. survival of consciousness. I mean, okay, you're a cardiologist, and um, well, an example of this is a man named Pim van Lommel, yes, a Dutch cardiologist who published a a really a groundbreaking and classic paper in the journal Lancet. So this is getting published. That's the other thing. Parapsychology has been mostly published in little journals mm -hmm. that are particular to it mm -hmm. itself. This work that I'm talking about is being published in Science and Nature and Lancet and British Medical Journal. And mm -hmm. these are big mainstream readers, yeah. uh, journals with thousands of readers. And, and Pim van Lommel published this piece in Lancet, a prospective study of near death, whereas all the earlier work was retrospective. That is, they interviewed people days or weeks or months or years after they reported the experience. So you're a, a cardiologist and you're in an operating room and you have a patient who dies on the table who goes, well, dying itself has become an issue. Uh, yeah. Researchers like Sam Parnia are now challenging us to, to rethink what we mean about life and death. Mm -hmm. 
anyway, you you have a person who whose heart stops beating, who goes brain dead, and uh, I mean, obviously they don't die completely because we bring them back, but during that period when they have no brain function. Mm -hmm. You could say they're right at the edge of death at yes. least. So they, they have no brain function, their heart isn't beating. Um, they report experiences which are very much like remote viewing experiences yeah. in which they say, uh, oh, I went out into the corridor and I saw this and I saw things that they wouldn't know even if they w had never had the near-death experience because they're in the operating suite and whatever this is is happening out in some other room. And that turns out to be objectively verifiable. And, mm -hmm. and so you, as a physician, are now confronted with, this person was dead, as I understand it. We were able to bring them back, but they were functionally non-conscious, mm -hmm. non, no brain activity, no heart activity, no way that thinking could be happening, no cognitive capacity, and yet they had these experiences which required full conscious awareness because they can tell you what people look like, what colors, what smells, all sorts of things, just like remote viewers. Mm -hmm. um, during that period of time when they were in this sort of the waiting room of death. Yeah. Well, if you see a number of those, you as a physician are suddenly confronted with the idea, we are more than animated meat. Mm -hmm. I think the problem with that scenario is that people who are medical doctors or biologists who take an interest in non-local consciousness and begin to experiment with it are typically going to be unaware of the vast history of unique yes. to parapsychology. Yes, that, that you've spent years studying and I've spent years studying. Yes, yeah, so, well, these interviews that you're doing I think our, I, I put on my historian hat now, because I have another whole life as a historian of the, particularly of the early American Republic. Um, I think these interviews that you are doing are going in the future to be absolutely critical because you're quite right. What's happening to parapsychology, and I really, uh, I feel not only very regretful, but I, I think that the historian historians and philosophers of science are going to particularly regret this, is that these little journals, uh, you remember the mm -hmm. uh, Journal of the American Society of Psychical yes. Research, for instance. Yeah. You know, these journals no longer publish. Paper journals take up a lot of space. Libraries have little space. So they look at these hundred-year-old journals and they think, do we really need to keep these? So they're being discarded, and and a whole section of science is being lost, mm -hmm. at, at which I think is t just really. And, a, and even amongst the three hundred or so practitioners of parapsychology today, many of them uh, are not familiar with that literature. Yes, not only that literature, but they are unfamiliar with the work that's being done in other disciplines. So. Yeah. You know, I encourage people, uh, both within the community and elsewhere, to to really begin to look at, at what is happening mm -hmm. and to preserve. I wrote The Secret Vaults of Time. When I started, when I got interested in using remote viewing in archaeology, I felt it in, was incumbent upon me to, to compile all of the prior research that had been done mm -hmm. precisely for the reason you're describing because I was afraid that it would all get lost. And in mm -hmm. fact, um, 
for instance, the work that was done by Stefan Osiewiecki mm -hmm. with uh, Stanislaus Poniatowski, some of the very significant uh, use of remote viewing in archaeology, yeah. which uh, changed the understanding uh, in the community in Poland. Uh, Poniatowski was the leading ethnographer of Poland at that time. That work was all done during the Nazi occupation, mm -hmm. and I I got it from the the family of the uh, the Osiewiecki family, and had it translated. It was still in handwritten notes. Mm -hmm. I have, he has now died. I have no idea what happened to the originals. I have photocopies, and then I hired a, a Polish translator uh, to translate mm -hmm. it all for me so that I could do a chapter on, on Osiewiecki and Poniatowski. But you're absolutely right. I mean, as far as I know, I mean, that work may be lost now. Yeah. If you look at the early Riche work or the Warcalier research uh, or Harold Sherman uh, and his work with uh, Wilkerson, right. the Arctic Explorer. And the book Thoughts Through Space. Thoughts Through Space, yes. Where is that original documentation? I, I, I yeah. knew Harold Sherman quite well. Uh, he had some of it. I have no idea where it mm -hmm. is now. And it's, so it's not only that people are unfamiliar with it in the yeah. community, which is unfortunate because then you keep reinventing the wheel, but from the position of uh, history and philosophy of science, yeah. this is a big chapter that is in danger of getting lost. That's why these interviews that you're doing with people like me who are now becoming elders, um, this will become important in the future when people say, well, what were they doing about this? Yeah. I mean, you know, what was the original thinking? Why did they do this? Why didn't they do that? Well, these kinds of interviews are mm -hmm. are going to be one of the fragments that are left, whereas other things are going to be lost, and yeah. I, I just think that's terribly unfortunate. Well, I, I have to agree with you. I did some studies of uh, one of the great psychics working in uh, criminology, Kathleen Ray, who died a number of years ago and had extensive files of dozens and dozens of cases she did in combination with police departments. Right all over the United States, and, and now that's all gone. All those records have been destroyed. Yeah, so it's, mm -hmm. we are, so the, the good news is we are moving toward a new paradigm in which consciousness is a fundamental in science. Mm -hmm. The bad news is that much of the original research which brought us to where we are today is in danger of being lost. And I think for those of us who are workers in this vineyard, it is very important that we make arrangements that our papers and things be passed on and not lost. Because the like your criminological stuff, and I can think of several other ex similar examples, yeah. um, once it's gone, it's gone. Mm -hmm. and, and, and more than that, I mean, for instance, in my own case, I've done, I did two large experiments, intercultural experiments, and I used the UCLA biometrics department to, to handle, because this was early computer days, to, to handle the mass of data. And I went back to get it not very long ago, and um, it's all been destroyed. Mm. Yeah. Well, I hate to end the interview on that sad note, but uh, in many ways, uh, it's just realistic. And, yeah. Uh, it's an important issue to reflect on, Stephen. Thank you so much for being with me. 
My pleasure. And thank you for being with us. The New Thinking Aloud, or In Presence podcast, that you have just heard was originally recorded as a video for the New Thinking Aloud channel on YouTube. Check out the channel by going to newthinkingallowed.com.